I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. The FT. Welcome to Banking Weekly from the Financial Times with me, Patrick Jenkins. Joining me in the studio today are Martin Arnold, our banking editor, and Emma Dunkley, our retail banking correspondent. Today we'll be looking at the change at the helm of Credit Suisse as the Prudential's Tijan Thiem takes over from Brady Dugan. Secondly, we'll be going to Germany for a look at Commerzbank, where they are facing a conduct fine. And finally, Aldermore, the UK small business lender, is planning to float. That Credit Suisse story, though, Martin, has been dominating our attentions on Monday and Tuesday. It's a pretty unexpected move for Switzerland's second biggest bank to turn to an insurance executive. It is, and the initial reaction of some leading city figures was disbelief, almost. They didn't expect Tijan Tiam to leave Prudential, where he was doing very well. Most people did expect a change at the top of Credit Suisse, but somebody without any banking or investment banking experience or any experience of Switzerland was not top of their list. But on reflection, it does seem as though people have come round to the idea that Mr. Tiam, who is both very respected in the city circles and also has executed a proven strategy of expanding in Asia could bring quite a lot to Credit Suisse. What investors expect him to do is to do something that his predecessor, Brady Dugan, failed to do, decisively anyway, which is to cut back the investment bank at Credit Suisse, which is underperforming and has been hit by a lot of new regulation and they've been forced to hold a lot more capital against it, which is making it pretty uneconomic to do business there. So to cut that back, free up capital and to reinvest in the private banking asset collection business of Credit Suisse, particularly in emerging markets, particularly in Asia, hence the logic of appointing somebody like uh, Tijan Tian. Now, just to put this into context, there are big changes going on across particularly the European investment banking spectrum. Deutsche Bank is next month going to announce a big new strategic plan, which is expected to include pretty heavy cutbacks at its investment bank, which is also struggling with very, very low returns. Barclays has said its patience is running out with its investment bank. It's already done a big restructuring, but it's still not turning around as quickly as it would like. Uh, Royal Bank of Scotland has almost obliterated its investment bank with a drastic restructuring plan that will reduce it to a very small UK focused business and you know several others UBS has already pretty much scaled back dramatically so there are big changes afoot in this industry. So is this a death of European investment banking particularly? I think death is too strong a word. I would say that several of the European investment banks are very strong in fixed income trading areas. Credit Suisse, Deutsche Bank, Barclays all have their big trading floors that trade bonds, loans, rate products, foreign exchange products. These are all areas that have been hit the hardest by the capital changes. Also, the environment has been tough because there's been a lack of volatility, so there's not been very much trading going on because foreign exchange rates have been pretty stable, interest rates 
profits have been at record lows and stuck there. So there's not been much going on. There's not been much revenues from trading these things. Customers haven't felt the need to take out a big hedge on interest rates because nothing's changing. But also, that I mean, the main driver is capital requirements. And that is one of the big issues that uh, Tijan Tiam is going to have to address because Credit Suisse is seen as a bit of a laggard in capital terms, also in leverage terms, the amount of equity that it holds against total assets, which is a measure of indebtedness, if you like. And on both those scores, Credit Suisse needs to strengthen its balance sheet. And I suppose the big question is whether that is sufficient to get them over the capital hurdle or whether he will also need to go for some kind of capital raising. But I guess we won't find out for some time before he gets his feet under the table. Well, people were speculating about the need to do a rights issue to raise fresh capital at Credit Suisse. They were even speculating about a dividend cut. Neither of those two things came last month when the bank reported full year results. And the analysts I've spoken to still don't think that they're going to happen now because they think that Tijan Tian is much more likely to do what Brady Duncan was reluctant to do, which is, as I said, cut the investment bank. That frees up the capital. That means you don't need to go to shareholders and raise money through a rights issue. You don't need to cut the dividend, both of which would be things that they would prefer to avoid doing. Well, time will tell. We should move on to our second topic, which is Comets Bank. And I'll stick with you, Martin. They're in the news again this week over past conduct issues. Tell us what's going on. So they're being investigated by two groups of US regulators for two separate incidents, but there is expected to be a global settlement for both of them, costing the German bank uh, about a billion and a half US dollars. One is breach of US sanctions, where the German bank is seen to have handled transactions for clients in countries like Iran, Sudan, Cuba, which were on the US sanctions list. An echo there of what we saw, particularly embarrassingly, at BNP Paribas and before that Standard Chartered, large fines for those sanctions breaches. Yeah. BNP Paribas in France was particularly dramatic because it was almost $9 billion worth of fines and a guilty plea and a restriction in its ability to clear US dollar transactions. The Comets Bank one is not seen as quite as egregious, although we don't know yet. Remember the BNP one snowballed. They, they took a $1 billion provision and then six months later it was $9 billion they ended up paying. So who knows where we'll end up, but it's expected to come this week. It's expected to be pretty bad but not as on the scale of BNP, I don't think. Comets Bank had a reputation of doing some business in countries where other banks wouldn't do it. So I think it's fair to say there's going to be some embarrassing stuff in the documents that are produced by the US regulators in their usual fashion. The other element is a specific anti-money laundering failure of controls to do with the Olympus scandal in Japan. And Comets Bank was involved with that. And there's been allegedly a, a failure of controls at the bank um, regarding money that was paid during that scandal. Just one wrinkle is that the Commerce Bank is still 17% owned by the German government. And so, you know, this is damaging both to the German financial system because Commerce Bank is a big lender to the Mittelstand, mid-sized companies that are Germany's big powerhouse of their economy, but also damaging to the national finances in a way because this will only hurt the share price. But there is some scepticism in people I've spoken to in Germany as to whether there'll be the same political hoo-ha that resulted from the big fine for BNP Paribas because the Germans aren't seen as quite as attached to their national champions as the French. Well, thank you for that, Martin. Just to mark a change of tone away from the bleakness and bad news of legacy fines. Emma, you have a tale of a slightly more upbeat nature. Aldermore is floating. 
Yes, Aldermore listed today. It's a bank that focuses on lending to small businesses as well as offering residential mortgages. And it listed on the stock exchange with shares priced at the upper end of the range, 192p, valuing the bank at around 650 million. Aldermore was planning to float at the back end of last year, am I right? But that was taken off the cards at the last minute. That's right, yes. So it was planning to float in October time alongside Virgin Money. However, it had to pull its planned flotation due to choppy equity markets. This is at a time when there was a lot of uncertainty in the Eurozone. So both of those challenger banks delayed their flotation with Virgin listing less than a month later in November time. So Aldermore is chuffed to finally get it underway and said that, in fact, a lot of the investors they'd already spoken to at the end of last year were ready and waiting, essentially. So there was a lot of interest from long-only fund managers and also what Philip Monk's chief executive describes as quality hedge funds in both the US and the UK. And the bank managed to raise 75 million of capital from new shares, which it said will be used to help fuel the growth of the business. Now, Aldermore was private equity owned or remains private equity owned. Martin, Anna Cap is the private equity company that was their main backer. I remember many years ago when I was covering private equity, breaking the story of this deal being done by Anna Cap when they were the first ever private equity company to buy a licensed deposit-taking institution, a bank, basically, in the UK. And they bought what was then called Ruffler Bank, which specialised in lending for slot machines in amusement parks and places like that. They financed those things. So it was a very specialised niche, one branch, tiny little thing, and they built it up into this company that is now listing with a market cap, I think, of close to a billion, is it? 650 million. 650 million. But they're growing incredibly fast, and it is a sign of how these challenger banks are starting to emerge that are taking some market share from the big established clearing banks. And we've got another one on the way, haven't we, Emma? Is that right? Yes, Shawbrook is actually set to list in the next couple of weeks, a similar profile to Aldermore in that sense. And just to add that both are very much poised as strong growth companies. I mean, Aldermore, I think, said net lending is about 4.8 billion last year, although it still represents a very small proportion of the overall market. So it's less than 3% of, say, the asset finance market, about 1% of invoice finance. In terms of commercial mortgages, about 1%. So it's still very small. But it noted that it hit a a sort of return of equity of about 20% at the end of last year. So it's a high growth profile company. Well, no wonder investors want to get in on it, I suppose. Well, that's it for this week. All that's left for me to do is to thank Martin and Emma for their contributions and thank you for listening. Remember, you can keep up to date with all of the latest banking stories at ft.com slash banking. Banking Weekly was produced by Fiona Simon. Until next week, goodbye. For more downloads, go to ft.com forward slash podcasts. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quinn's. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And is all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com pack for free shipping and 365-day returns.